Do you remember that show, My Pet Monster? I still remember your version of the theme song. <laughs> My Pet Monster. He's the monsterest friend, you know. My Pet Monster. He's got his very own show. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. It's called The Podcast Wore Tennis Shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,768 films on Disney+. Plus. My name is Sean and I am here with my regular co-hosts Bob and Rob and Rob, something's different. <laughs> Has your beard always been that red? <laughs> what can I say? I've only been doing this since the first podcast. You sound different too. What's going on? What big eyes you have? Oh, the uh, better to see you with. I know what's going on. You're not Rob at all. You're Thomas. Well, we don't have Rob. You know why, listeners? Take one guess why. One guess where Rob is. He's in the north. He's camping somewhere. Instead, we have Thomas. Thomas, tell us a little bit about yourself. You uh, you work on The Flash, right? Yes, that's uh, true. I am uh, art department coordinator on the television show The Flash. I've been part of the motion picture industry for forever. Unlike everybody else here, I have had zero experience in acting. My experience is all on the other side of the camera. I've been in locations. I've been in camera. I've been in the production office. And now I make uh, art stuff. All right. Well, that's going to be perfect because we have our regular weekly segment coming up next. Flash spoilers, where we talk about what's <laughs> happening next season on The Flash. So, Thomas, you start. <laughs> well, there's this whole secret thing where Iris West comment has been redacted. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Thomas. I do have a question for you, though. As I have been alluding to in recent weeks, boy, oh boy, oh boy, do I need some five-star reviews and likes and subscribers for this podcast. So tell me, Thomas, have you given us a five-star review and subscribed to this podcast? I have indeed subscribed to this podcast. All right. Well, if you were going to give us a review, Thomas, what would it sound like? What would the subject line be? Oh, now I have to think. That's too early in the morning for thinking. <laughs> I, I, I lied when I said you weren't required to think. That is usually the case with most Disney Channel remake films. Yeah. No, I'd say my the review would be it's an engaging dive into the darkest corners of the Disney universe. I thought you were going to say the darkest corners of humanity. Sean's mind. <laughs> All right. Well, this week we are going dark. We are going deeply dark into the very swear-filled 1987 film Adventures in Babysitting. This was your choice, Thomas. So tell us, what's your experience with Adventures in Babysitting? Have you seen this film before? Uh, I saw this film years ago in all places at a babysitting course. I was like... Very, very young. Learning Wait, I'm, to... so, I'm sorry. Wait, what? Like, you went to a babysitting course and the class was watch adventures in babysitting? 100%. That's what happened. Was it? Was this a case of, like, don't do what Donnie don't does? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. It was just kind of like the teacher. It was like a couple weekend course and the teacher just kind of ran out of material. She's like, well, you know how to give babies CPR and uh, you know not to like drown children. So I just have this movie about babysitting. This will probably be fun. Okay, so there was three lessons. There was baby CPR. 
there was not drowning a baby. And then there was, what do you do if you go into the city and get kidnapped by carjackers and have to climb out of the roof of this building, play in a blues band, and then dangle off the side of the Nakatomi Plaza? That's exactly what this course was. All right, fair enough. And how long did your babysitting career last, might I ask? I babysat quite successfully for like two to three years and by that point i was old enough that i realized there were better ways to make money and what was that what did you did what did you transition into drugs uh even better i worked at the wonderful world of walmart uh you should have stuck with babysitting or drugs all right i've been so engaged with our new co-host thomas that i haven't even asked my regular co-host bob how are you doing bob i'm as good as you can be after waking up and the first thing you do is watch a made-for-TV Disney Channel remake of a movie. Oh my god, did you watch the 2016 Adventures in Babysitting film? Yeah, and we'll get to it. I'm, I'm okay. I, I have a lot of coffee and, you know, I have, I have my two friends here to support me, so I think I'll make it through. Okay, well, we're gonna try our best. We're gonna start with the 1987 original flavor version of Adventures in Babysitting. This film was written by David Simpkins, and it was directed by Chris Columbus in his directorial debut. Chris Columbus started out, he wrote the film Gremlins. He then got picked up by Amblin and wrote a couple of films for them, Goonies and The Adventures of Young Sherlock Holmes. And afterwards, he was poached by Disney, or the Touchstone Division of Disney specifically, to direct his first feature, that being Adventures in Babysitting. There's one more key name in the -the behind-the-scenes creative team that I want to mention, and that is... Drew Struzan, who did the poster for this movie, and God, is it a good poster. God, I love Drew Struzan. There's no bad Drew Struzan poster. And this is a particularly fantastic poster. Like, this is, when I saw it as a kid, like, with that babysitting course, most of this movie kind of just, like, filtered out of me. (laughs) I love how, like, the premise of this is, like, this babysitter course led to your career in the film industry. Like, like you took this babysitter course, and she's like, today we're going to talk about Drew Struzan. And then tomorrow, she's like, and now it's our Chris Columbus class. All right, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, I was going to say is the, probably the thing that stuck in my head the most and like for many, many moons is this poster art because you see it on a lot of the old video releases and things like that. And I always saw it and I was like, man, that's a really good poster. I remember that way more than I remembered this movie. How'd you get into babysitting? It looks exciting. Look at them dangling off the side of that building. I, I will throw one more behind the scenes. Uh, this was produced by Deborah Hill, who was also a producer of the original Halloween. Oh, nice. Which you get a callback to in the movie when Elizabeth Shue walks in to see what the kids are doing in the first babysitting shot the song coming out of the tv is part of the theme for halloween despite the fact they're not watching halloween and that was her own nod to the film i know i was kind of disappointed they weren't watching halloween because the whole watching halloween thing is part of this weird series of layers of film because in halloween the main character is watching the film the thing the original black and white version of the thing that's right and then john carpenter went on to remake the thing And then in the movie Scream, they're watching Halloween in the scene where she's watching The Thing, which is one of the weird kind of like meta jokes in Scream. And so I think it'd be even better if Adventures in Babysitting got into that and they're watching Halloween. There's just this weird, it's like a curse. Anytime you put Halloween on, something terrible happens to the people in the film. That goes too with, uh, there's kind of a thing with Wes Craven in that too, because in Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Nancy's watching The Evil Evil Dead, because in the basement of the cabin behind the Kandarian dagger and the Necronomicon, there's a poster for The Hills Have Eyes, which is why Wes Craven gave the nod to Evil Dead. And then if you look in the basement of the cabin in Evil Dead 2, Freddy Krueger's glove is hanging up on the wall. All right. Good job, Bob. 
I didn't know any of that. More background discussions with Bob. <laughs> All right, Thomas, tell me how this movie begins. It begins in a young girl's bedroom where she's dancing and singing and having a glorious time. She's very, very excited. And she's getting ready for what is very clearly a hot date. And she is in love. I'm not sure she's a young girl. She's 17, but the actress is older than that. But in the context of the film, she's practically an adult. She's the one in charge. She's getting too old for this. She says on multiple occasions, just like Danny Glover, she's nearing retirement. (laughs) That's a very good point. Yes, I forget that I have become old and jaded and everyone feels young to me now. So we open with Elizabeth Shue dancing in her bedroom to the song, And Then He Kissed Me. And my first thought is, that's a movie star right there. Because, fuck, Elizabeth Shue can capture your attention immediately. All she does is lip sync and dance around her room throughout the entire opening credits. It's like four minutes. It seems to go on a long time. It's the whole song. I literally wrote a note. Oh, she's doing the whole song. (laughs) But it's amazing. It's really good. And she is always dynamic on screen. And so, Bobby, what happens after that? So she's dancing around the room. She is in love. Who is she in love with? Um, She's in love with a 35-year-old man in a leather jacket (laughs) who drives a Camaro. She's in love with Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford, who has always been 35 and always will be 35. Bradley Whitford, who looks like he's been paying taxes since the womb. (laughs) He's always been an assistant manager of something. Um, What does his license plate say again? Was it speed? So cool. So cool. So cool. I should always dig digger than IMDb trivia, but IMDb claims that is Bradley Whitford's real Camaro, and that was his real license plate. Oh my god, are you serious? Yeah, I, I, I should go further than IMDb, but I was like, well, this is, I just, I just want this to be true. <laughs> wow, okay, and uh, so she is going on a date with 35-year-old assistant manager Bradley Whitford, who shows up at the door, and unfortunately, he's going to have to cancel. He tells Elizabeth Shue his sister is sick, and he's probably contagious. He has to stay home and look after his sister, and he can't take her out to the fancy French restaurant that they were going to go to on their anniversary. And she's quite disappointed because she's already dressed up for this date. And so how long was this date going to last? Like, were they leaving at three in the afternoon? Because the whole movie goes between now and when they're supposed to be on this date. So what were they going to do during that time? It was their anniversary. I could see them doing something special. And they did have to drive to the city. But you're right. It is like a lot. That, there's a lot that happens between like now and his reservation. Yeah. Because he has a reservation for like eight o'clock and it's like three in the afternoon and she's already dressed up for the date. She could just be really excited for it as well because I think it is. Yeah, it's their one year anniversary and she's obviously looking forward to it. And, you know, she's wearing the curtains as if it's a wedding veil. Like she's hoping for big things. He's going to he's going to pop the question. Yeah. She's going to be able to move into his bungalow. Yeah. Oh, what a disappointment. She can't go on the date. She calls up her friend Brenda to console her because she just wants to sit around and be depressed. I want to touch on one thing, too. There's a really nice moment here, too, in this, because the whole opening is, and then he kissed me, all about getting kissed. And then when he comes and says, hey, I can't do this, she goes in, she wants that kiss. She's been singing about it for four minutes. And he goes... No, you can't kiss me. Mm-hmm. She So she doesn't get that. She's looking for that payoff from that song. That four-minute song pays off almost immediately in this. Well, I mean, it pays off, pays off at the end of the film, which we'll get to. But you're right. They're setting it up 
and they're doubling the setup by establishing she wants a kiss, establishing Bradley Whitford is going to refuse to kiss her, and so she still has not received that kiss that we know from moment one of this film she is looking for. Um, why doesn't he kiss her? He says he's contagious. Yeah, but she's willing to kiss him. It's not like it's not like she's trying to trick him, and she would know that he's lying. But he's a 35-year-old who drives a Camaro, like... Like, I guess he just legitimately doesn't want to kiss her, but why? This is his girlfriend that he... I guess he's breaking up with, but he's not breaking up with her? It's a confusing moment. Yeah, it's a little... The two thoughts I can come up with is, one, he doesn't... He's one of those guys who just can't bring himself to break up with her because he doesn't want to hurt her heart, and he's actually not into her anymore. Or, two, he's just really trying to sell this story that he's sick, and if he seems concerned about her... By not kissing her, that makes him seem like a better guy and helps his story seem stronger and she won't question it. Maybe. I mean, I don't think he's I don't think he's trying to spare her feelings because he's Bradley Whitford <laughs> douchebag extraordinaire. Although you may be right, he may be non-confrontational. Like this may be his way of ghosting her. He's just never gonna break up with her. He's just gonna constantly pretend to be sick. That could be it. A, a man whose license plate reads so cool is not in touch with his emotions. That's true. It's just the immaturity of Bradley Whitford. The last immaturity of Bradley Whitford. <laughs> so she just wants to stay home and be depressed. Brenda tells her that he's clearly lying and he doesn't want to be with her. And she says, no, why would he do that? I believe him. And then her mother comes in and says, Elizabeth Shue, I just got a request for you to babysit tonight. Okay, you, you missed the like iambic pentameter that was Elizabeth Shue, I have a request for you. <laughs> Elizabeth Shue. Uh, that's not iambic, and it's not pentameter, it, it, but it, it is a meter. It, it was a rhyming couplet. Like, it, yeah. it was something nice. Um, uh, I did miss that, so thank you, Bobby. Now, in rhyme, Bobby, tell me what happens next. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to stay at home, give up and quit, is instead told to leave the house and sit. Oh, wow. Good job. Now... Explain what that means. <laughs> <laughs> she says to Brenda she wants to stay at home and be depressed. Uh, as you said, her mother tells her that the neighbors up the street need a sitter. Why, why does she? I can't remember exactly why did she says yes. I think just because it needs to move the plot along, but it's something to do for the night. Uh, she, yeah, basically she just wants to stay home and be depressed. But I think Brenda is kind of like, no, you got to get out and you got to do something and get out of the house. And her mother also pressures her. So yeah. I think it's just whatever. So she gets out. She gets in the car. She drives over to the Andersons because she's going to babysit. And then we get our splash logo of the movie, Adventures in Babysitting. And just as much as I love that Drew Struzan poster, I also love this Jack Kirby style comic book logo adventures in babysitting that they just throw on top of the screen. It's so much fun. And I, I love that it comes after the credits. Like it's a good like almost 10 minutes into the movie and you get it. The rest of the movie has been very traditional kind of like uh, John Hughes style coming of age teenage comedy. The fonts they use in the credits are very standard. And then all of a sudden she's going to go babysitting and bam, you get this cartoony Jack Kirby logo and you're like, this is going to be fun. This is going to be an adventure. <laughs> All right, so tell me about this family that she has to babysit, Thomas. Well, she gets there, and before we get there, we find out that uh, the the son, the, the boy she's going to have to babysit, has a huge crush on her. He's very excited that she's coming over. He's kind of blushing. He's like, gets really awkward. And then you meet the girl they're going to babysit, who is obsessed with Thor. She adores Thor. She thinks he's the coolest thing ever. He is her hero, and everything is covered in Thor. It's kind of like Disney knew that this was going to happen, and 
as far as I'm concerned, this movie is part of the MCU. It is 100% part of the MCU. As, because she's not just obsessed with Thor, the Norwegian god of thunder. She is obsessed with Jack Kirby's Thor, the Marvel continuity Thor. She has her entire room splashed with pictures and posters, and she's drawing a picture of Thor. And just like you said, the uh, older brother of this family, whose name is Brad, he's played by Keith Coogan. I'm going to just call him Will Wheaton because we seem to call every single teenage character boy that shows up in these movies Will Wheaton. But this guy really kind of gives me a Will Wheaton vibe, I got to say. At any rate, he is concerned because Elizabeth Shue is going to show up and he's in love with Elizabeth Shue and he has a pimple. So he wants to get rid and cover up that pimple, but his clearacell is missing. The reason it's missing is because his little sister borrowed it as paint so a few questions about this joke number one this kid is mixing paints out of like everyday pigments she runs she finds around the house as if it's like the 17th century or something like is she grinding up like flowers to make her blue like they live in a mansion they are in the suburbs of Illinois. They are clearly in John Hughes style Shermer, Illinois. They're a wealthy family and she's like grinding up pigments to make her paint. It's very strange. My second question is, when he tells her, where's my clearasil? She says, I needed more brown. Yes. And he says, how am I going to cover up my pimple? So the clearasil, first of all, is brown. And secondly, he was going to cover the pimple. Like, was he going to put on brown face? Like, what was the situation here that he was planning? I wondered that, too. I was sitting there going, like, I remember Clearacel when I was a teenager. And it was like a white cream that just absorbed, like, moisturizer. I don't remember it being, like, a thick brown paste. His skin isn't the right color for brown to be even remotely useful as a cover-up, unless he committed to covering his entire face. Yeah, I, I, I don't really understand that sequence. I don't know what was going through his head or what his plan was. I'm just, I think he was panicking so much about the pretty girl coming over that he was just talking nonsense. What do you think, Bobby? We, what do you, clear cell for us would have been like the late 90s. I don't know what it would have looked like in the 80s. They might have rebranded it later on as like a nighttime thing. It could have acted as a double duty of like, well, it's close enough to a skin tone, it'll cover it up and yeah. also kill it at the same time. That's kind because of, I thought the same thing. The thing you're not touching on is that the reproduction of the Jack Kirby painting this girl does with clear cell is phenomenal. <laughs> she's a fucking savant. you're not wrong it's very good and actually there's another detail we haven't touched on too that really adds to all of this she's dressed as thor for the whole movie in this first scene she's also wearing roller skates thankfully she takes them off and does not wear those roller skates throughout the entirety of the movie i will return to this when we talk about adventures in babysitting 2016 so elizabeth shoe shows up at the house she's gonna babysit for these kids what happens next thomas well, i'm gonna just jump back for one second there's one key moment here that we kind of skipped because over this clear cell fight um her brother goes thor is a weirdo and she gets really yeah. upset with that and is like thor isn't a weirdo yeah and this this comes back later on so that's why i wanted to bring it up yeah i don't know if you guys want to touch on this now um we do get an introduction of this movie stating that this movie has been edited from its original format due to content i think we need to talk about it now because there's a, it's gonna show up a lot i've written a lot of notes basically you have to have a translator as you watch this movie on disney plus so like i said at the beginning this is the 
dark, dark, dark Disney film that has so many curse words in it, so many, that they had to make a TV edit for this film, where he's sick of these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. This TV edit is the one that they have put on Disney+. Plus. They have replaced all of the swears with the TV cut alternatives that aren't quite as curse worthy, and the first one we get is kind of good. I think it's better to have him say Thor is a weirdo because not only is it ridiculous, it's not quite as offensive as the alternative that they used in 1987. And I'm just going to say it. I apologize for saying the slur, but the original word is Thor is a homo. And that is what makes her so upset that he is calling Thor a homosexual man, which in 1987, I guess, is something that seemed quite offensive to these kids, which is kind of unfortunate and uncomfortable when you watch it today. A lot of other things are censored in this movie, some of which I think are vastly inferior, and I really wish we could just watch the original version, but uh, Thor is a weirdo. I'm going to say that's an improvement. Yeah. That is the McClunky of this edit. It's way better. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think moving forward, I'm going to call everyone I dislike a bohunk. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> oh, dude, dude, I looked it up. Okay, I have to bring it up now because you've said it, and I have to clarify. That is extremely racist, and we shouldn't say it. Okay, never mind. Which is so weird because it's not edited in this movie. We'll get to that. Okay, never mind. I, w I will be calling nobody that ever. That's <laughs> actually what I meant to say. I didn't look it up. Neither did the Disney Plus censors, apparently. <laughs> okay. Oh, dear. So Elizabeth Shue walks in just after they call Thor a weirdo, and the family is going out because the mother is... Oh, she's got a party. They're going to a gala yeah. of some sort. What it is doesn't really matter, I don't think. But it's a gala for her for their dad's work. Yeah, at Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. Because it is spooky season, it's very appropriate because they're going into downtown, the spookiest place in the world. It's so scary. And just after the family leaves, just after the parents leave, Elizabeth Shue gets a phone call from her friend Brenda, who has already, in the five minutes since she talked to her, like, skipped town. Like, things escalated quickly for Brenda. Uh, Thomas, tell me what happened with Brenda. Yeah, so that's right. So the first time when they're ha having the conversation with Brenda, she met, she alludes briefly to she doesn't like her father or something like that, and there's some trouble at home, and she's just, like, sick of it. And then, yes, yeah, something like maybe half an hour later, she calls up. She's like, I did it. I ran away. I made it all the way to the bus station in the city. But now I'm out of money, and I need help. Can you come pick me up? Because I have no money. And while she's having this conversation, there's a homeless man trying to get into the phone booth she's in because he claims it's her house or sorry, it's his house and he wants her out. He's like, get out of my house. And she's terrified, desperately trying to keep the little accordion doors closed while she's having this conversation. So on Elizabeth's shoes end, it just kind of sounds like she's dying. All right. So there's there's two things that I want to say about this. First of all, when Brenda first talks about her problems at home, she says, I want to put Drano in my stepmother's tab, which <laughs> I like because it's another example of, for some reason, everyone in the 80s drank tab. I don't know what tab is. Never had tab in my life. I grew up in the 90s in Canada, and I don't think it was even ever sold here. But in the 80s in the United States, everybody drank tab. It's a diet soda, right? It has no sugar. I only know that because in Back to the Future... He asks for a tab, and he says, uh, well, if I'm going to start a tab, you got to buy something first. And he says, well, just give me something without any sugar in it. So I assume tab is no sugar, right? It, yeah, it might have been It might have been one of the first sugar-free sodas. Anyway, so she didn't end up putting Drano in the tab. Instead, she went downtown, 
Which brings me to the entire kind of ethos of this movie, and that is that this movie, for some reason, takes place in a Fox News editorial nightmare. <laughs> this is what Republicans wake up screaming about in the middle of the night. So this is how they view those scary inner cities. Ooh, this is a comically absurd movie, and it's funny because of how absurd it is. But at the same time, watching it, you're like, oh, this is what they think life is like. This is what Fox News viewers think it's actually like when you go into the city. Like, they think it's like this. It's this is So this movie is basically Little Republicans, Big City. <laughs> <laughs> that, that explains your earlier text of when you watched the movie and said, everybody in this movie votes Republican. <laughs> of course they do. They live in Shermer, Illinois. Just to specify, Shermer, Illinois is not a real place, but it is a suburb of Chicago. Chicago, where all of the John Hughes films are shot, and everybody lives in white bread suburban mansions. And that's where they live in this movie. They live in a suburb of Chicago, and God forbid they ever go into Chicago because it is a dystopian nightmare. And when Chris Columbus saw the script and he said, well, we're going to shoot a movie and it's supposed to be in inner city dystopian Chicago, what city in North America could possibly stand in for this Escape from New York-esque hellhole? And it's Toronto. And I have to say... They nailed it. There's no place more dystopian than inner city Toronto, because watching this movie, I was like, oh, I recognize that place. It's exactly how it looks. <laughs> Lots of sketchy people trying to stab you. Oh, a man in the bus depot with a gun laughing. Oh, Toronto. My, my earliest memory of getting off the Greyhound bus at the bus depot in Toronto was walking outside and seeing a dead raccoon half hanging outside of a garbage bag, out of a garbage can. And then someone was like, get away from my dinner. <laughs> Basically Toronto. So they have to go into the city and rescue Brenda from Toronto. Go ahead, Thomas. There, I want to jump in for a second because we have there's one character has has been introduced at this time period. Oh, Bill Wheaton. <laughs> yeah, Will Wheaton's uh, best friend, who also thinks Elizabeth Shue is really hot, and this also introduces the Playboy magazine that goes throughout the entire movie that has. Miss March, who looks exactly like Elizabeth Shue, and therefore everyone's convinced it's the same person. He somehow weasels his way into going on this road trip into the city as well, because he's horny for Elizabeth Shue, as far as I can tell it. That's his goal in life. Well, everybody is, because she's Miss March. But you're correct, Thomas. We need to introduce Anthony Rapp is in this film, and he plays Brad's weird best friend that Brad was going to hang out with that night, but instead Anthony Rapp is going to tag along on this road trip, and he tags along because he's hiding in the bushes, and he jumps out just as they're about to leave, and he says, hey, can I come? Which, uh, I kind of wish that's how he was introduced in Rent. <laughs> how can you document real life when real life's looking more like fiction each day? Isn't that also Chris Columbus? It is! That's also Chris Columbus. <laughs> Part of his Anthony Rapp triptych. I'm assuming he made at least one other Anthony Rapp movie. Anthony Rapp tags along. They go into the deep, dark city, Toronto. As they get on the freeway, the tire explodes, which is the first part of their adventure in babysitting. They have to pull over to the side of the road. They have no spare because Elizabeth Shue is driving her mother's car. And they don't know what to do because she also forgot her purse back at home. Uh, what happens, Thomas? Well... First off, their tire explodes, and then they have to make it across an obscene number of lanes of traffic. They're somehow as far over as humanly possible. They finally are able to get over to, like, the side of the road, where there still seems to be traffic on both sides of them. So they're kind of on a one-way median. 
a tow truck pulls up behind them and they're terrified that it's this dude who's going to murder them. Elizabeth Shue, while they've been driving along, has been telling horror stories about a man with a hook hand. And lo and behold, the tow truck driver has a hook for a hand and is terrifying. So they're all afraid that he's going to like murder them in their sleep. Which brings us to our favorite Disney game, Spot That Ableism. Because boy, are they offensively scared at this man who is missing a hand and has a hook for a hand. Uh, I feel so bad for this guy. They're screaming at him, basically. He's just trying to help. Right? And he deals with it with really good humor, too. He's like, oh, no, like, I get it. People are terrified of me because I have a horrible hook for a hand. I just really want to help you. And so they eventually, they calm down and they let him tow their car away and they get to all hop in the trunk with him. Which is the first time that they have to try and learn this lesson. It takes them many times throughout the movie to learn the moral of the story is. And the moral is Republicans shouldn't be so scared people in the inner city because everyone they meet they immediately go don't hurt a scary inner city person and then that person appears to have a heart of gold usually sometimes they're actually criminals who want to murder them but sometimes not every democrat is evil (laughs) what happens next bobby they're in the car well they're in the tow truck the car is being towed and Bill Wheaton says to the driver, all right, so I got to ask, what's to do with the hand? And he tells the story. He's like, is it, and he says, is it a nom joke? And I, I wondered if it was going to be a nom thing. And he goes, ha, no, nah, it wasn't a nam. Car crawl on it, fell off, popped right off my hand, right off the wrist. I keep it in the glove box. And you're like, oh, that's, that's a fun, fun story. Scare kids. Like he keeps his hand in the glove box. He gets a call on his radio from another tow truck driver saying, hey, I was just at your place and you're not going to like what I see. Veers off the road into this inner city neighborhood in Toronto. And you don't know what's going on. He reaches into the glove box and by his hand, he means his piece. He keeps a revolver in there because he's a tow truck driver and that is fair enough. And he immediately runs in, that, in this house and starts shooting people. And it's very fun and very enjoyable. And you see him throw a man out the window of his house because you realize his wife is having an affair. Yeah, I know. He goes in the house, bullets start flying, they start shooting up the car, and you're like, wow, these people have been in Chicago for all of five minutes and they're already in a shootout. Should have listened to Fox News. (laughs) So while he's trying to kill the adulterer that is uh, sleeping with his wife while he's out on the job. The kids jump out of his tow truck and they can't take Elizabeth Shue's mother's car. So instead they jump in the adulterer's car. He's got a Cadillac on the other side of the road and they're basically just trying to hide because they don't have car keys. But luckily, someone else is in that car. Thomas, who's in that car? There is a uh, black gentleman sitting in the car who's in the middle of hijacking it. He's hot wiring it as they speak. And he doesn't seem to be phased at all that a bunch of people have climbed into the car. He just kind of glances around and then just goes back to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's quite content to just sit there and be happy. And they don't really properly acknowledge each other until he's already finished hot wiring the car and is driving away with it. Will this Republican nightmare never end? First, they're in the city. Now they have a black man. It's so scary. Do we get to play our, our second favorite game? Spot the racism. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's intentionally. The, the movie is kind of mocking them. The movie is setting up these stereotypes and then sort of batting them down. Like, it's it's a 1980s version of batting down the stereotypes, so it's still, it's not exactly cutting edge of progressive comedy, but part of the joke is supposed to be you watch it and it's like, oh, it's a scary black man. Oh, he's not that scary. He actually has a heart of gold. Oh, it's a scary man with a hook for a hand. Oh, he has a heart of gold too. So I'm not sure whether I would say that the movie's racist with this character as much as it's just commenting on the racist assumptions of the people watching the movie. I'll agree with that, except for maybe the line where Brenda's in the bus station saying how scared she is of the bald Chinese lady with no pants who lives in the bus depot. That's just describing a scary person. 
It's not the fact. <laughs> Listen, Chinese is the least scary adjective in what she said. Okay. It's not the Chinese part that is supposed to be the scary part. Of and that. that kind of goes back to this car thief. The kids and Elizabeth, she were like, can we just get out of the car? Just drop us off in the corner. Like, we don't want to be a part of this crime. And he goes, oh, trust me, you don't want to be let out in this part of town. I will take you somewhere much safer. Just like stick with me and like, I'll find a way out of this. But I, I would feel really bad leaving you on the corner. No, I'll agree with that too. And I'll say that I think the thing with him is that he kind of has this attitude of like, don't judge on me. This is just how I make a living. I'm not a bad person. That's how everyone has to make it listen okay when in rome yeah you know don't hate the player hate the game when you're in chicago when you're a democrat you got to do what democrats do you got to rob cars okay you have to do drugs it's just part of the society man it's not really him the car thief takes this cadillac with the kids in it to a chop shop what happens next thomas well they all get to the chop shop and the guy's got to deal with all the uh, gang members and like the head criminals who want this thing and in a rare moment of realism in this movie they're all just really upset that this family is in the car they're like why did you bring them to a chop shop <laughs> i mean it's very perplexing i have to agree yeah it does, um, it's, it's a terror it's a very strange decision he's like bringing you to my bosses who are going to be very mad is still safer than whatever's out on the street there trust me this is the right option. I, I don't know. I think it probably would have been easier for him to just kind of – it's not that far just to another part of town. Just, right. <laughs> you know, just drop them off a few blocks down the road. I'm sure they'll be fine. But he perplexingly brings them to his criminal empire. And uh, yeah, the rest of the criminals are very upset about this. They're just like, why, why would you possibly do this? There's so many witnesses now. I don't even know how to deal with this. I don't want to like kill these. What are we going to do? And so they just like lock them in the office while they try to figure out what to do with these kids. Well, and we all know it's in the office. In the mm, office what? is yet another copy of the Playboy magazine. Because it's the 80s and everyone has – Playboy must have been the most successful magazine of all time. Everybody in town has a copy of Playboy. It's like uh, the New York Times the day after Kennedy was shot, except it's just Miss March. Like everybody's like, oh, fuck. Do you have Miss March? Oh, fuck. Yes. I mean, as you say, this is like also a Republican's nightmare. Every Democrat in the city keeps a copy of Playboy on them at all times. <laughs> I know. It, it just keeps getting worse. First it was black people. Now it's pornography. Pretty soon it'll be blues music. The boys then steal this copy of Playboy, which very conveniently all across the centerfold has all of the business details of the criminal empire written on it because the only paper he had to write down information on was the Playboy he was looking at. And he refused to change the page because Miss March was that hot. I want to talk about this. The boss had written all of his notes about the Philadelphia order, which is a bunch of stolen cars they're going to send to Philadelphia on this Playboy because it was in front of him in the office when he was taking a call. Okay. He asks his second-in-command, where's that Playboy with all of my notes? The second-in-command says, oh, I took it up to the office. And then he goes, there was this really good article. And then he trails off. And watching it, I'm like, did that man masturbate in his boss's office? Like, that is a bold move. In his boss's office with his boss's Playboy. <laughs> with his boss's pornography. But he didn't even, like, take it somewhere. He just, like, th that is... That is a fuck you to the boss. You're just going to go <laughs> masturbate in his office. Interesting choice. Anyway, so he goes up to the office to try to get this Playboy back and he discovers, dun, 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 the kids have escaped and they took the Playboy with him because Anthony Rapp cannot be stopped. He is the horniest boy alive. He is. There is a, there's a little, I think there's a little fun little joke within this scene where he says, you know, we'll deal, I deal with the, I'll deal with the Brady Bunch later. 
And then it cuts to a TV, it cuts to a TV and someone is watching the Brady Bunch and you can hear the theme song playing. And I was like, oh, that's actually, like, that, that's a fun, that's a fun joke. I liked it, yeah. I made a note of that too. Uh, okay, so they're locked in the office and they realize that we're gonna get chopped up and put in the trunks of these cars and shipped to whatever other inner cities, uh, Democrats sell these cars to. Young Thor looks up and realizes that it is possible for everyone to climb out of the vent on top of the office, and they can probably get to the roof and escape, uh, which Elizabeth Shue is very reluctant to do because she thinks everyone's going to get hurt, but they realize they have no better options. So up the vent they go, and through the rafters they take. I went back and watched this a couple of times because Bill Wheaton, when he's told he has to walk across the rafters, says, you got to be kidding me. But he says, you got to be kitten me. She says, watch your language. Watch my language. You got to be kidding me. And I was like, He's definitely saying shitting me. Yeah. If you're going to censor it, get rid of the watch your language line because otherwise the joke doesn't play. And it's like, well, he just said kitten. Like, those are nice. Like, what do you have against cats, Elizabeth Shue? I think I think the joke kind of still works because it's it's so absurd. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Watch your language. You got to be kidding me? <laughs> and he's like, watch my language. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, it kind of it makes a new joke. You're right. But this is actually to touch on the censorship a little more. While I'm really glad they, they they changed the like the weirdo line. This is one of those ones where it's like, who is the target audience for this film that you think the word shitting needs to be changed? Like, this is very clear. Like, Playboy is a center point. It's a very horny movie. Everyone's constantly horny in this movie. And everyone is horny for Elizabeth Shue. That is like the secondary plot of this film. Right? Like this isn't a movie that I would necessarily want to show to like an eight-year-old. Well, the movie is directed at an older audience. Um, And I briefly mentioned this at the beginning, but uh, to go into slightly more detail, this is actually, I think, the first Touchstone picture that we have covered on this podcast. Touchstone being the label Disney created to be able to release more adult fare that wouldn't uh, tarnish the kid-friendly Disney brand. And despite the fact that this, in many ways, is a family-friendly film, it was decided to put it out as a Touchstone release with a lot of cursing in it. So it's actually more of a 14A would be the rating in Canada, probably. It's a more adult-targeted film, which is probably why it didn't end up doing too well, because they kind of mix up the storyline content with the sexual and cursing content and it kind of is at crossways the fact that they edit out all of the swears and keep all of the other racy content in the movie is just because this is a tv edit tv edits just have a series of words they're not allowed to say on television before 10 o'clock at night so if this is going to air on the wonderful world of disney they cannot say shit in they cannot say asshole so they replace that with airhead yep my favorite we'll get to it later maybe but i'll just bring it up now when they are in the hospital and they run into the adulterer again the adulterer says hey those are the kids uh who took my car and then he says get back here where's my goddamn car but they edit out god so he just says where's my damn car and watching it i was like just like Disney, taking God out of the movies. That's actually a very common thing. If you watch any American made-for-TV edit of a movie, you can say damn it, but you cannot say God damn it. They will every single time censor the word God out of it. PC police too far, you know? Let's get God back in the movies. That's what I say. Where are we, Thomas? So now they've they've escaped through the roof, and just as they get outside, the criminals figure out what's going on, and they see them, and so there's a chase sequence that uh, ensues. 
So they realize there's a door open in the alleyway. They hop inside of it. And next thing you know, they are on stage at a blues club. And this blues musician says, nobody gets out of here without singing the blues, which means, oh my God, my favorite scenes just keep happening. It's the lead of the movie has to get on stage and make up a song on the spot. It keeps happening. I love these old films. This is the third one in a row. I think. Well, not Million Dollar Duck, but it is... No, Million Dollar Duck. It's it's a three out of the last four. I have that. I made that same note. When that came up, I was like, oh, Sean loved this. I know he did. It's three out of four movies that we've watched where the lead or the lead villain has to get on stage and make up a song on the spot. And just like with the other ones, I loved it. I loved it. I don't care how ridiculous these scenes get. I don't care if it's the ninja rap, all right? I don't care if Vanilla Ice is there. I love these scenes. And this one was fantastic. Bobby, tell me what you thought about this scene. It's a lot of fun. It plays as being really awkward even though this movie is ridiculous it's like not too far out of our reality and so elizabeth shoe is kind of awkward at it at first but once she gets into it and the kids get into it and it turns into a song and the band is into it she has a lot of fun with it and the scene is actually a lot of fun it's ridiculous but it you know as you say it makes you wish for the day you're like you know one day i'm gonna be on the run from someone and this is how i will get out of the situation i'm gonna make up a bitchin blues song so this song is called babysitting blues it was written by mark mueller or co-written i should say by mark mueller and mark mueller is famous because in the same year as this he wrote the theme song to DuckTales and Rescue Rangers. He's amazing. I love this guy. Uh, he also, later on in the late 90s, wrote the song Crush for Jennifer Page, who showed up in our Country Bears movie that we just talked about. So, uh, okay. lots of six degrees of separation here. Um, in this scene, Elizabeth Shue has to make up this blues song on the spot with this blues band, and it's ridiculous, but I liked how authentically flummoxed she is at times. There's specifically one moment where the lead blues singer, he has a chorus part that he starts singing because he's clearly much better at this than she is, where he says, uh, what you're feeling when you're standing in someone else's shoes or something like that. It comes back to it. He returns to this bridge later on and he starts singing the what you're feeling in someone else's shoes part. And she tries to sing along with him. She tries to like kind of harmonize with him. But she kind of doesn't remember what the words are that he just made up. And so she's kind of stuttering and can't keep up with what he's doing. And then she kind of laughs it off and keeps going. And watching it, I'm like, that's so authentically fun. Like, they genuinely seem to be having a great time up there trying to make up this silly blue song on the spot. That was definitely something I noticed, too. They really felt like they had fun. I liked the way the scene starts, because, like, they, they make her go, and she's standing there, and she has to introduce herself. Gets, like, a line out, and then there's the guitar beat. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, and it works very well in the universe they've established. Like, this whole movie takes place in a universe that's just a little hyper real. Everything's over the top, like the man with the gun or the, the homeless people. They're all a little exaggerated. And so this scenario is also a little exaggerated in a way that you don't even question it. Well, I mean, it might be a little exaggerated to you, but as someone who lives in Toronto, yeah. I don't know, because <laughs> this is just the silver dollar, which admittedly doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down five years ago, or at least the, the 
silver dollar as a bar no longer exists. Uh, but in the 80s, this was, oh, that was a happening blues joint in Toronto. I also like just the lyrics of the song that you're like, this is silly, but it works, that the lyrics are just the problem she's currently having that day, which is what the blues are. <laughs> yeah, I know. They are permitted to leave, and they are escorted out of the club via a guitar solo, the only way I ever want to leave any building ever again in my life, to which the criminals are hot on their tail, and they run on stage, and they run through the club, and they try to get out, to which the guitarist blocks them with the neck of his guitar and says, nobody leaves this place without singing the blues. And you're not treated to their song, which is a sad disappointment. <laughs> Because based on the reality of this movie, it happened. What did they sing? Da 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 da. Uh, stole a bunch of cars. Da 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 da. Sent them to Philadelphia. Da 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 da. Wrote all that evidence in a Playboy for four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the lead singer's like, "And it's so hard trying to kill those kids who just ran out the door." I think from this point, then this is where they run. They still get chased by the criminals, and this is where they get on the subway. Am I correct? Well, first they have to. This is one of those weird moments where, especially with all the censorship and the dialogue, I was like, "Wait a minute," because they have a brief moment where they're just walking along the side of the river. And they come across, they start talking to these people who are like warming their hands by the barrel and they have a chat because the little redheaded friend is so horny that in the middle of trying to run away, he goes off and finds a 17 year old prostitute. Yeah, right. I love how, yeah, it's a flaming barrel as if this is like a post nuclear war dystopia. It's like the stereotype of people under a bridge warming their hands on a fire in a, in a trash barrel. But it's just the middle of Toronto. It's just on the waterfront. It's just like, this is just what we do here. And uh, Brad also decides this is the time where he wants to profess his love to Elizabeth Shue. He's like, no, no. And this is one of those weird, awkward things, too, where I've constantly... I had to really figure out what the age difference between these characters was because she's like seven. She's 18, I guess. She's 17. She's 17. Okay. And he's 15. But and this is where I was like, wait a minute. He's 15 and he's not allowed to babysit his younger sister. Like, how incompetent is he? What like what do his parents think of him? They don't like him, obviously. He's he's obviously I don't know, he wears too much brown face and they're like, It's so offensive. Don't do that. You're not allowed to babysit anymore. <laughs> we come home. <laughs> we come home. How many times do you and your horny friend alone in the living room were just hiring a sitter? Yeah. Ignoring the age difference though, they don't really have any chemistry other than he fawns over her. And I do love that the movie didn't just go for the easy thing of she just falls in love with him as he goes along. That's one of those tropes they love to do. And this movie skips that. Yeah, well, thankfully, because he's not the lead. If he was the lead that would be she would be the trophy at the end it would be very hocus pocus thankfully she's the lead and so we get something not quite as cringeworthy one more thing when anthony rapp tries to hire this prostitute elizabeth shoe stops it asks the prostitute how old she is and the prostitute says i'm 17 and she's like you're 17 why are you doing why are you on the streets oh my gosh what happened to you and she says well this is what happens when you travel into the scary big city. The Democrats make you a prostitute. Everybody in the city is either a car thief or a prostitute, or they have a gun and they're going to shoot you. Well, and then you know what happens the second they try and use public transit. second they try and use public transit, they get caught in a gang war. Describe this gang war for me, Bobby. I was actually really hoping this was going to be a dance-off ally Michael Jackson's bad, because that is exactly <laughs> what these gang members look like. Or uh, beat it. Yeah. Because they got the knives. Yeah. They're, they were going to like tie their 
arms together and, and do a, a, a dancing knife fight. That would have been good, but unfortunately, Elizabeth's shoe stops them in the middle of their Beat It-style dancing knife fight. She tries to get them to hold off on the gang war until they can get off the train at the next stop, and the gang member starts calling her a witch. <sighs> Ooh, so offensive. And then Anthony Rapp tells Brad, are you gonna let them call her that? And so he stands up to be her knight in shining armor. How dare you call her a witch? And of course, just to clarify, in the movie, they're calling her a bitch. I think it's just as funny to call her a witch. I don't really care. The one line in this movie that is vastly inferior because they censor it does come next. When Brad jumps up to defend her for being called a witch, the one gang member throws his knife at Brad's foot. And Elizabeth Shue is called into action as the heroic babysitter. She pulls the knife out of Brad's foot, holds it up to the gang member, and says... Don't fuck with the babysitter. It's awesome. And then they censor it and they say, don't fool with the babysitter. Because it's because yeah. he it's when he throws the knife in her the kid's foot. He says, don't fool with the lords of hell. Yeah, because that's their gang name. Yeah. And they're like matching red leather jackets. That's just who you are. You're the lords of hell. PG-13 allows one fuck. But not two, which is why they had to censor it. It's such a good line, and I don't fool with the baby. It's not It's not even funny. It's just such a disappointment that they don't have that in there. It's kind of like if you were to watch Terminator, and he looks into the cop's eyes and goes, I will return. That's not the right line. The exact obvious comparison is John McClane not being able to say, yippee ki motherfucker. Yes. This is yippee ki motherfucker. It even has a Nakatomi Plaza in the movie. And they edited it out. And it sucks. It sucks. It's such a good line. That was that was the first thing I looked up. And so going into the movie, I knew. It was like, okay, so there, there, this line is going to be censored. And I just wanted to see how bad it played. And as you say, don't fool with the babysitter. I mean, it, it's something that would have come from the 2016 remake of Adventures in Babysitting. And the version of the line in that movie is even more censored because fool is too offensive for the Disney Channel. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. After finishing this one and then going on and watching the 2016 Disney Channel version, I was really hoping that they would say, don't fool with the babysitter. I was like, that would be such a good callback. That that would be quite funny. And then they don't because nothing about that movie is good. But we'll get to that. No. She intimidates the gang by saying, don't fool with the babysitter. And they get off the train. But Brad has been stabbed. And so they rush him to a hospital. What happens at the hospital, Thomas? Before they get to the hospital, there's a scene I want to touch on. Okay. There's an interlude between this where it cuts back to Brenda at the uh, bus station. And she's starving and she's desperately trying to buy a hot dog. And the guy will not sell her out. He gets it all ready. He decides he won't give it to her because she doesn't have any money on her. She's trying to write a check or something. He's like, nope, cash only. She's not trying to write a check. She is trying to sign over a check because it's the 80s and people still operated under ancient mercantile law where (laughs) signing over a check to somebody else is legal tender. Uh, So this was Elizabeth Shue's mother wrote Elizabeth Shue a check. Elizabeth Shue signed it over to Brenda and now Brenda is going to sign it over to him for hot dogs. So this is a check for like $2 or maybe $5. Like it's just uh, the 80s were weird, man. Yeah. And then Brenda is still hungry and alone. She never should have gone to Toronto, I got to say. Okay. So what happens next? Where are we? We're cutting back here, but they're going to the hospital. Yeah. Right. They're going to the hospital. They take because Brad to the hospital. Brad needs to go to the hospital because uh, they don't know the extent of his injuries. They drop him off at the ER and he is given to a doctor who is either high on Valium or Percocet. 
I mean, whatever you got to do to get through the night shift. I really liked this doctor. It just suggested to me, again, because they're living in Chirac and uh, it's just a war zone outside, he's just disassociated from reality. Every single person that comes into the hospital, they're like, oh, which one's dead? Is he the one that's dead? No, someone else is dead. Okay. All right. Like, he's just seen so many people die tonight. I mean, it's funny because it's like this, this ends up like playing to be the whole joke. He needs one stitch in his toe, one or two beds down. There was victims, assumably, of the gang fight that happened on the train. And the stab victim has been killed. And so when they say, how's our friend with the stab victim? He just goes, oh, no. And explains to them that he died. And they freak out and panic. Elizabeth's shoe faints. Uh, Will Wheaton comes out. Reveal that he's okay and everyone's happy. His sister's happy. His best friend Bill Wheaton is happy that Will Wheaton is alive. Elizabeth's shoe wakes up and everything's fine. And this is now we get to the scene where you said the adulterer is also in the ER and he has had the living fuck beaten out of him by the tow truck driver. Because he, you see him get introduced and then he comes out of the curtain and says, hey, those are the kids that stole my car. Where's my car? Blank, damn it. To which case, the tow truck driver comes to the rescue and just keeps beating the shit out of this guy in the middle of the ER. I loved the tow truck character. He was my favorite character in the whole movie because he is the, like, such a... He's a good dude, but he's an anti-hero who does things by unheroic means. And then tells the kids that he sent their car to the specific garage, Dawson's garage. He says that he paid for the replacement for the windshield, which got shot during the shootout. <laughs> That just always happens. Oh, another car with bullet holes in the windshield. Let's just do the standard re- replacement. Um, this is the city, after all. Uh, he says he re- he replaced that because that was his fault. But they're going to have to pay for the replacement tire now. And so they need $50 to, play- to pay for this replacement tire. What happens next, Thomas? The, the tow truck driver helps them sneak out of the, the hospital and then goes back on to cause more mayhem. I actually, I, I love his exit line because they're like, well, can't you come help us? He says, no, I'm a wanted fugitive now. And then you never <laughs> see him again. <laughs> I can't remember his name, but his last name is Noonan. He's the brother of Tom Noonan, who plays Jack the Ripper in uh, Last Action Hero. Oh, of course. Of course. They look very similar. In true fashion, the horny redhead is like, I see a party. It's a college party and just bolts for it. And so they're forced to go to this college party. Where he finds another woman who wants to sleep with him. I mean. Right? A really, really drunk college girl is just like, yes, you're what I was looking for. A 15-year-old boy. I guess. It's a pretty creepy scene. But all the frat boys turn around and they think they have seen Miss March. They're like, oh my god, it's the girl from the Playboy. She came to the party. And they all start hitting on her. And then you reveal that a man who is basically the 1980s version of Paul Rudd turns around to save the day and be like, guys, guys, think about this realistically. Would Miss March really come to our college frat party? Despite the fact that we are such a poppin' fraternity, we have a live band playing our frat party. I mean, at this point, it's pretty well established. But the inside joke within the movie is that that actually is Elizabeth Shue in the Playboy. They really did fly her to the Playboy mansion and, like, do a fake Playboy shoot for this movie. So the inside joke is that it is actually her. This happening party has a band that is a real band, apparently by the name of Southside Johnny, in keeping with the Chicago setting. But, man, that band feels a lot like Huey Lewis in the News. Doesn't it? <laughs> Like the music and the singer, it just reminded me of Huey Lewis and the News. I was like, wow, this is a, this rat got Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> As I say, they're obviously a very well-off fraternity. And this charming man saves the day. Prince Charming gives them $50 for the tire, although he actually only has 45 But Elizabeth Shue says, oh, that's probably close enough. And now they head off to the garage to buy the replacement tire and get home. Now, you glossed over the return to the inadvertent racial slur I accidentally mentioned <laughs> in this scene. 
Because I thought it, I thought it was a word they made up to dub over something worse in the movie. I watched it a couple of times and couldn't make out what they were saying. But now you're telling me they were actually just being really racist, and I should regret ever having opened my mouth in the intro. Yeah, I looked it up because I was wondering: is this another hocus pocus situation? Or is this Gabos again, where they just made up something? What is it? It's like him. Bo- what is it? Bohunk. Bohunk. Okay. I apologize if anyone is getting offense, offended by the use of this word, but uh, when I looked it up, it is apparently an extremely offensive slur against Eastern European people. It's very specifically racial. It's apparently very offensive. And for some reason, that was not edited in the TV cut. So, wow. Uh, they say it like three times, too. Every character gets a chance to say it. They're like, this is fun. Let me say this <laughs> racial slur, too. Oh, man. Yeah, that's definitely not one I picked up along the way. I just assumed it was a nonsense word or a dub. And yeah, oh, wow. No, this is this ain't Yabos. This is something a bit worse. That's, that, that, that's the other T-shirt. This ain't Yabos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Bobby, what happens next? They have their $45. Where are they going? They are going to Dawson's All Night Garage. Uh, that's not in the title, but I don't know why this guy works on cars 24-7. He just – that's just how the plot of the movie goes. His garage is also under a bridge – to imply he's a troll. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the city has, like, layers. They have to, like, drive down into, like, a sunken layer. As if it's, like, Christopher Nolan's version of Gotham City. Where... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, like, Attack of the Clones era Coruscant. As each layer you go down, it's even scarier and scarier. So, yeah, he's, like, in a sunken part of the city. Underneath where everyone else lives. Go to the garage to get the car. They have $45... And who do they meet at the garage, Thomas? Well, they go in and then there's this sexy gentleman with long flowing blonde hair. And it turns out he has a sledgehammer. And the little girl's like, oh, it's Thor. You're Thor. You're my hero. So Thor is their car mechanic. And he's 100% not willing to take the $45 for a $50 bill. And the girl gets really upset by this because he is her hero. He is Thor, and she's like, I know what's happened. You've been corrupted because you don't have your magic helmet on. You've been corrupted by a trucker hat. Yeah. A a red trucker hat. (laughs) So she takes off her Thor's helmet and offers it to him as a gift. And he's like, have this. Be complete again. And he's so touched by this that he decides not to take the helmet. He's like, no, I have one at home. Don't worry about it. This scene aged interestingly because Thor is played by Vincent D'Onofrio. He's like, he's in really good shape. He's really young. It's as if Disney knew this was going to happen. Like, don't worry. In like almost in 30 years, we're going to buy Marvel and this will all make sense. Because of course, as we all know, Vincent D'Onofrio would go on to play Kingpin in not one, but two versions of the MCU. So he is now Thor and Kingpin within the MCU based on this movie being part of our own MCU canon. And like that, like that aged really interestingly in a way that, I mean, as we're guessing, Disney from his cryo chamber could have predicted but nobody else could have what i like is that um the vincent d'onofrio thor origin story is more accurate to the original jack kirby pitch than the current mcu version because vincent d'onofrio basically plays dr donald blake who doesn't originally realize that he's thor until he is presented with the artifacts of thor specifically thor's hammer and then remembers he is indeed thor and goes back to being a hero I kind of like that, and I'm imagining shortly after they left, Dr. Donald Blake flew away back to Asgard. Well, because it gets mentioned earlier in the film when they're driving to the city. She says, no, all the heroes live here. Spider-Man lives here. Thor's here. I think she says Iron Man lives there, too. Like, she's really excited to go to the city where the superheroes live. Chicago isn't Manhattan, so I'm not a... She needs to get her geography better, but I'll, I'll let it slide. She's a little kid. This movie... Like, I, we didn't touch on this, too. I wanted to just go on it real quick, is that there's all sorts of fun little 80s things, like, thrown into this movie. I mean, 
uh, as you say, um, writer of Gremlins, the little girl is wearing a Gremlins backpack throughout the entirety of the movie. Mm -hmm. I also like that in her bedroom, she has a My Pet Monster up on her bookshelf. My Pet Monster. Uh, I'm going to say something that I'll probably edit out of the podcast because it's going to be funny to nobody but me. But... When we were teenagers one time, I asked you, do you remember that show, My Pet Monster? I still remember your version of the theme song. <laughs> My pet monster. He's the monsterest friend, you know. My pet monster. He's got his very own show. I, I sung that when I saw him on the show. <laughs> Thor lets them leave for only $45, and they're going to go pick up Brenda, but instead they see the French restaurant where Elizabeth Shue was supposed to be on her date with 45-year-old accountant what do they see outside the restaurant but the car with the license plate so cool and elizabeth shoe storms inside to confront him because he went on the date without her with another woman that she knows a woman that she describes as a shrew but they're censoring the fact that she said slut and she accuses him you're supposed to be here with me and Bradley Whitford says, hey, you know, I don't know what it is you thought we had, but it wasn't really there. He's not in touch with his emotions. He's avoiding the fact that he should have just broken up with her and he can't do it. He makes this like really awful comment about Elizabeth Shue when the other girl makes a comment on her saying, oh, you don't have to worry about her. Her legs are locked together at the knees. And this is implying that the reason he broke up with her or won't break up with her or won't be around her is because she won't sleep with he's him. He's douchebag Whitford. He's just, he's just supposed to be extremely unlikable. While this fight is going on... Young girl Thor steals some dessert and wants to go outside and look at the toy store they passed earlier and commented on because you get the impression she hasn't ever been to the city or doesn't get to go very often. Well, no, everyone in the city has guns or is a prostitute. They would never let this kid down there. It's Toronto. As the little girl is at the toy store, the mobsters who have been chasing them the entire time find her outside the toy store and chase her up the alley. And as Elizabeth Shue and Kurt Gang look, they look to the toy store to where they think she could be. They see their dad's building and go, wait, she knows this is where your dad works. They've probably gone to your dad's building. And this is the last chase of the movie leading to the Die Hard ending of the film. It's basically just Die Hard. They go to Nakatomi Plaza. She goes to the wrong floor. It's under construction, just like in Die Hard. She's chased by the bad guys past all of these plate glass windows just like in Die Hard. She climbs out the window and it dangles from the side of the building just like in Die Hard. It's awesome. And just like in Die Hard, yeah. unfortunately on the TV edit, they can't say yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. Which then leads you to that the wonderful comical moment where everyone starts seeing this kid hanging out the window. But of course, not a single adult ever sees it. Only our heroes see this. Well, nobody's looking out the window. They got better things to focus on. Everyone, just like any good party, is focused on the deli table. All right? The catering. This is this is what's important. I don't think it really matters to walk through the beats of it. She eventually escapes. They eventually give the porno back to the criminals and escape. Uh, the carjacker with the heart of gold saves them. Giving the playboy back to them was the one thing that was weird. I thought that the car... Because as you say, the carjacker comes in, he saves them, and is like... Gets helps them to escape, knocks out the guy. I thought he was going to keep the Playboy as leverage over them so they wouldn't come for him. Um, but instead, he just gives it back to them. I thought that was like that seemed weird to me. You know, I think it's to signal to the audience that this storyline has been resolved. Yeah, for sure. Whether or not it makes sense, it's just supposed to signal that uh, the villains got 
their playboy, so they're not going to be chasing after them anymore. Movie's over. And all that's left is just like any good John Hughes film, they have to race their parents back to Shermer, Illinois. So they get in the car and they have to race their parents back home to their mansion in the suburbs of Chicago, which they successfully do. Is there anything else to talk about or is this... I was actually going to say, we, we, we skipped over the actual A-plot of this movie. They pick up Brenda from the bus station. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> when she gets back to the house where the babysitters are, Elizabeth Shoes like, for fuck's sake, go home and don't ever do this again, slams the door in her face. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot that was the point of the movie. Yeah. So, and then at the very end, Paul Rudd shows up with the missing roller skate that they forgot in Paul Rudd's car, I guess, when he drove them to the garage. I think that's the last time they saw him. Yeah. It had the address of the home on it, which is how he knows they're there. He drops off the roller skate. He says something very creepy where he says, I was looking for a babysitter. And she says, who did you want me to babysit? And he says, me. And that's supposed to be flirting, I guess. But I took it as the weirdest, like, girl, you can find someone better than that. Don't go from Bradley Whitford to whatever the fuck this is. But at any rate, it doesn't matter. They kiss, which p- pays off the whole beginning of the movie. And they play the same song again. And then he kissed me. And then we go to credits. So, Thomas, out of the one movies you've watched so far for this podcast, where do you rank Adventures in Babysitting? I have also watched Return to Oz quite recently. So I would actually say Return to Oz is probably my favorite so far. And then Adventures in Babysitting is a close second. Bobby, what do you think about this film? My little, like, gripes and, like, little things aside, I can see why this is, like, kind of a cult favorite of a lot of people. And if they'd seen it as a little kid, I, I see why people like this movie. It is fun. I think I was probably going to put it at, like, number seven, I'd say. So that's going to be right behind uh, Country Bears. Okay. Apparently, you can get the non-edited version on Disney Plus if you live in Sweden. Is that is that like a Swedish dub that isn't edited? I don't know. Apparently, it said that's the only one. Um, like you that's can get you, you can get the t- you can get the actual version of the film. I'm cu- I am kind of curious to watch the undubbed version. It's pretty obvious what's being dubbed and what the original words are. So I can use my imagination. Yeah. Uh, as I said, other than the one line. Yeah. I don't really care. In fact, it's funnier that everyone says these weird, weird <laughs> insults to each other. It's. I think it's just a priority thing. This went on Disney Plus as the TV edit because they wanted it in the American Disney Plus, which at the time had no parental controls and yeah. was all supposed to be family-friendly content. That's changed now, though. But I just don't think, let's get the version of Adventures in Babysitting where they say homo on there now is not at the top of their to-do list. For me, uh, I think this is really good. I think I've seen it when I was much younger, but I didn't really remember much of it. And rewatching it, I thought it was a delightful lark. I thought it was a grand adventure. Uh, I'm going to put this just above Hocus Pocus. Um, I think that's around the same place you have it, Bob. I think it's around seven, although I'm, I think you have Hocus Pocus higher. But for me, I think it's a good, fun kids movie with, for some reason, a bunch of swears that they threw on the Touchstone release at the time. Don't really get it. But what did you think about 2016's Adventures in Babysitting, the Disney Channel remake? I really don't want to talk about this fucking movie at all. It is so bad. It is so fucking bad and boring. Um... I I actually crammed all of my notes into the bottom corner of the page because I didn't want them to take up any more room in this notebook than they needed to. I have a couple of big picture things I want to say about the difference between this. And I found this to be quite illuminating. I hated this movie. Deeply, deeply hated this movie. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out why. You're remaking a movie that's quite charming. This movie... It's it's the opposite of charming. I found it extremely unpleasant. Here's the honest truth. I still haven't finished it. 
Thomas asked us to watch this for his episode like two weeks ago. I've spent two weeks trying to watch the 2016 version of Adventures in Babysitting, and I could get through about five minutes at a time before I just went, no, I'm done, and then I'd turn it off, and then I'd have to come back a few days later, and I'm still not done. I don't know how it ends, and I don't care because fuck this movie. But one thing I will say is some big picture differences between this and the original. I said at the beginning of the 1987 Adventures in Babysitting that Elizabeth Shue is immediately a movie star because you like her. She captures the screen. She dances around. You want her to succeed. She's awkward. She's head over heels in love with this asshole. But her, you like. She's charming. She's, you're introduced to the kids she's babysitting. All of them you like. Sometimes they're a little awkward. Uh, the older brother is in love with Elizabeth Shue and it's embarrassing, but even when it's awkward, you root for him. You hope that this is going to end up okay. All of the characters in the 2016 remake are the worst people in the world. Every, every single person. They are awful. Just as a little background, this time there's two babysitters. The only idea anyone ever has for a sequel to a kid's movie is they say, hey, remember when there was one of these things? What if there was two of these things? And so it's Garfield 2, A Tale of Two Kitties. It's Look Who's Talking 2. Now there's two talking babies. It's not Terminator 2, which has two Terminators in it, and that movie's fucking awesome. That movie is awesome, but that's another example of now there's two of them. Uh, Air Force 2. Now he has two planes. <laughs> and the two babysitters are Sabrina Carpenter, who plays Jenny the babysitter, and Sophia Carson, who plays Lola the babysitter. Uh, Sabrina Carpenter is best known for being on the television series Girl Meets World, so she's another Disney Channel regular. Both of these characters are equally awful, and they're awful in different ways. Uh, Sophia Carson drives around an $80,000 Jeep, parks like over two handicap spaces and- And the curb. And the curb. She like mocks her mother for trying to encourage her to go to college and says that, you know, artists don't go to college. She calls herself a student of life. She's already late for a meeting and she stops for a smoothie. The premise is they're both putting together a photography portfolio to try to get a photography internship. And her photography portfolio is- It's a a collage. It's a collage that doesn't have much photography. Like, it does have an image in it, but it's it's an artistic collage piece. And it's like, I'm pretty sure that's not how you get a photography internship. And then she just hauls this thing around, and she's rude to everyone she meets. And Sabrina Carpenter is... Like, almost just as annoying? She is the worst photographer. Like, she has this, like, portfolio of, like, really bland photos that are not even remotely interesting. Even as a, like, this is a low-budget Disney Channel movie, I'm still like, oh, I feel like you could have found better stock images of something. Well, she doesn't even want to be a photographer. She's, like, trying to get this internship, and then she reveals that she wants this internship because it will round out her uh, resume. Both of these people are introduced as the characters in a comedy you're supposed to hate, that you're supposed to root against. Like, they come in and you're like, oh, I hate that person. I hope they get what's coming to them. But they're the protagonists of the movie. Well, there's one thing, I, I will say something kind of in defense of this movie. There's Because there's a number of sequences in this movie where I had to stop and go, oh, right, I am not the target audience at all for this movie. Who's the target audience? Assholes? <laughs> I mean, 
this the the movie still has many problems. I mean, if I was going to say the target audience, it's probably like six to eight year old girls. That's pretty young. But it's Disney Channel. That that that's on track. Everything is exaggerated. It's very over the top in a way that they go for very stereotypes. These people like one is boring and one is too artistic. And by the end of the movie, they both have to learn to be better people by being a bit more of each other. You're not. They're both supposed to be highly flawed, so that they can teach kids how to be less highly flawed as you go along. I don't really think they become better people. So Sabrina is uptight and she learns to loosen up a little bit. And Sophia Carson is supposed to be self-absorbed. In fact, she has a ringtone that plays a song where the lyrics are me, myself, and I. Like, it's so on the nose shit. She's self-absorbed, and I guess by the end, she learns to have friends. Like, it, but that's that's not the same thing. That, that's not resolving. Yes, and she also learns that she wants to go to college. That also comes along. She's like, oh, I can go to college. It's okay for me to... There is a, there, And this is one area where I have a bit of a problem with this movie is... One area? You have... There's one area where you have... A yeah. Yes, there are many movie. areas I have problems with this movie, but uh, it's it's very clearly pushing very specific values because anytime anyone's like, I want to color my hair and shave it, it's like, no, no, you're actually fine if you just behave like everybody else. I, I, I don't know about it. I mean, you are right that all the characters are one dimensional. Watching it, it basically felt like I was watching an advertisement for the Burger King Kids Club. It's like six cartoon characters and each of them has exactly one personality trait. This one likes, you know, playing baseball. (laughs) This one is in roller skates. Like, that's exactly what this cast of characters is. They all like one thing. One of the kids is roller skating. So they saw the original Adventures in Babysitting and the movie opens up with the kid roller skating and their response was, well, what if we take that one little character trait and we make it the only thing about this character. Another character won't stop cooking and talking about cooking. At one point, they end up at their parents' party and he has to cook everything for the parents' party. Don't ask me how this happens, but he walks into the kitchen and he becomes Gordon Ramsay and he starts ordering everybody around. And for some reason, everyone in the kitchen starts following orders from this seven-year-old boy. Well, he has... He has the hat. And this kind of goes to what Thomas was saying in the little kid version of this movie. If you were a little kid, you'd be like, oh, that's cool. That's me. I could go into a kitchen and be a chef. And But it's not just, oh, he becomes a chef. He's an asshole. Like, again, he becomes Gordon Ramsay. He's ordering people around. He's screaming at them. And, like, he's supposed to be a protagonist. And I don't understand why I can't like any of the characters in this film. I felt like the writers and the directors hated their own characters. In order to have your characters do some of the things that they're doing, you have to hate them. Like, you are trying to create a character that you have animosity around. They hate their characters. They hate their audience because they seem to have contempt for anyone watching it. It feels like the filmmakers, the creators are just like, I hate kids. I hate anyone that watches Disney Channel. I want to punish them for watching this movie. I think I read, too, that this was originally actually written to be a sequel called Further Adventures in Babysitting with Raven from That's So Raven and Miley Cyrus during their Disney Channel era. I mean, that movie would not have been good either. Beyond laziness. Like, I'm honestly at a loss for words. I'll touch on it really quick. The original movie is shot in Toronto. This movie was shot in Vancouver. If you have lived in Vancouver, which three of us have, you know damn fucking well it's Vancouver. They don't even hide the BC license plates on any of the vehicles anybody is driving. They all say beautiful British Columbia. And that was the moment when I went, okay, they do not give a fuck 
about what they are doing. Although I did find it quite amusing that uh, the premise of the movie is that it's so scary in the deep, dark city. And in the original, the deep, dark city is Toronto, which looks fucking sketchy as shit. And in the remake, the deep, dark city is Vancouver, which looks like Disneyland. Like, when they're walking around outside, there's just, like, kids playing on the sidewalks. Like, you know, it's packed full of people. It's it, it's like a tourist attraction, and they look like the nicest people in the world, which is a pretty good distillation of the difference between Vancouver and Toronto, though. Uh, they captured that pretty well. I barely finished it. I eventually was like, well, I got to do my Duolingo lesson. I should eat up, like, five minutes of this movie. And just didn't turn it off. So there's one other scene I want to talk about. And then I want you guys to tell me how it ends and then we're done. Because I, I do not care about talking about more of this movie than we have to. <laughs> they redo the getting up on stage, having to sing a blues song scene from the original. Except in this time, they are in what looks to be a rave, but it's a rave populated entirely by dweeby 16-year-olds. Like everyone at this rave is 16. It's the weirdest rave I've ever seen in my life. They stumble on stage. The DJ says, uh, no one gets out of here with Without speaking their truth and i went oh god oh god are they gonna rap <laughs> they do a rap battle between these two babysitters and it is one of the worst things i've had to witness again going to the contempt they have for the audience <laughs> there's this weird thing at the beginning where they're talking into microphones she says i don't know how to rap and they say yeah you can and so then she starts rapping and the audio immediately shifts from what is live audio being captured on the day because it's reverberating in the room that they're in uh to what is a pre-recorded audio track like they went into a fucking studio to do this awful terrible rap battle and the audio just shifts to what is clearly a studio recording that does not sound correct at all to the location they are in like you can't even throw reverb on this fucking thing like come on man there's a button your daw has one button that will make it sound like she's actually in a hall you can't press that button it's you're just a studio recording of them rapping as stated they are lazy and do not give a fuck i hate these people because these people are like i don't know how to rap and then these white teenage girls just stand up and it's like oh wait it's easy and then they just do a rap battle against each other and it's just like come on people like this is it just the contempt you have even just the culture that you're appropriating at this point is just like oh this is easy anyone can do this it's just like fuck off and then about halfway through i was like well at least they're not doing any black scent and then they start doing black scent the last verse she starts throwing some affectations onto her voice and i was like please stop how is this oh my god now you're doing black scent i will say this was one of those scenes where watching it i was like oh i could totally see like a six-year-old girl thinking this is the greatest thing she's ever watched i'm sorry tom i feel like i, I don't have enough contempt for six-year-olds to believe that they could like this film <laughs> the, if you check imdb the ratings are like pretty close it's like 6.7 for this one and like 6.9 or 7 or something for the original like there is love for this movie oddly enough oh i my mean god i mean gr granted those reviews like may have been written by definitely not a paid reviewer but and then the other interesting thing because i was i was digging into this movie just a tiny bit I, uh there's only so much digging you can do on this piece of trash but like for people who grew up with this this movie also turned out to be a lot of people's um gay awakening there were apparently a lot of people who watched this movie who this is the first time they're like, oh, 
I want these girls to be together. Right. So they're shipping these two girls because they're made for each other because they're both awful. Yes. They should be together because they're the worst people in the world. And so they shouldn't be in relationships with anyone else. They should only torture each other. I guess that's as good a reason to ship two characters as any other. I, d- I did I did just check. They are one point apart. Adventures in Babysitting is 6.9 on IMDb. 2016 remake, 5.9. Like, those are pretty close. You're making me sad. <laughs> I'm getting sad just listening to this. So, you okay, so let, let's rush to the end of this, and you can hear how this fantastic piece of shit ends. How does it end? They both go to the photography building and the larger-than-life photography Man, I don't know what this fucking guy's job is. Yeah, they've invented a bunch of stereotypes and jammed them all together. He's very flamboyant and kind of an art director, but also kind of an auteur, but also kind of just like a manager. And it's unclear. He, he appears to work in a library, like a public library. <laughs> I think it's the Surrey Public Library. Yeah, I think it is actually. All right. So uh, I'm just going to quickly run through Rob's notes. Here's what he texted me. Uh, I got to do my Rob voice. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, are they at the Guggenheim? Uh, no, Rob, they're not at the Guggenheim. They're in Vancouver. Uh-huh. Corner Gas is in this? Uh, yes, Rob, Corner Gas is in this. You are referring to the actress, sorry, I'm just gonna look up her name, Gabrielle Miller. Uh-huh. So the idea was one babysitter get- I'm gonna stop, Rob. <laughs> so the idea was one babysitter getting into unrealistic amounts of situations was too realistic, so they needed two babysitters. Rob, like I said, this is Air Force Two, now they have two planes. Why haven't they been shot at yet? I remember more shooting in the original. Well, in the original, they go to Toronto, okay? There's a lot more shooting in Toronto. Um, why are there only three ferrets in the whole world? That's such a specific number. <laughs> uh, holy fuck, Rob. How many notes did you send me? Jesus Christ, man. I can't get through this. We gotta, we gotta wrap this up. And then the final note that Rob has is, honestly, that kitchen really isn't that big of a mess. Which I think goes to just how lazy they are. They're too lazy to even make a mess. Wow, I hated this film. I'm putting this at the bottom. Fuck this movie. It's at the bottom of my list. Bobby, what are you saying? This is... Second last. It is above blank check. Oh, man. Only because the ending of blank check still offends me to this day. All right. But I liked Bullwhip Grippin more than I liked this movie. This My first note is I was three and a half minutes into the movie and I was like, Jesus Christ, this is going to be painful. Like, this is just a painful, soulless yeah. slog <sighs> that I barely paid attention to the last few minutes of. So I guess this is the bottom of your list too, Thomas. I mean, my list is three movies long, but uh, yes, this is a very, very distant bottom. I am, Sean, I am shocked because for like two months, it has been Freaky Friday 2018. Well, it's it's another Disney Channel remake movie that is taking its place. And granted, it's almost certainly just recency bias. They're both awful. And Blank Check is awful. But I don't care. I had so much trouble watching this. I'm putting it at the bottom. All right? Just these these are these are terrible films. Yeah, I think the Disney Channel is going to be the source of much pain in your lives. <laughs> All right. So uh, in 1987, when the original better version of Adventures in Babysitting came out, Disney released the following films. Outrageous Fortune. That is a touchstone film. Ernest Goes to Camp. Another touchstone film. Benji the Hunted, the fourth Benji movie, (laughs) the fourth Benji movie that is actually the only Benji movie Disney made. Disney, for some reason, came in four movies into the franchise and said, hey, can we have this? And they released a Benji movie that nobody saw or liked. Stakeout, the prequel to another Stakeout. Can't Buy Me Love. Hello Again, a Shelley Long movie. Three Men and a Baby and Good Morning Vietnam. 
this is a lot of touchstone films that barely even yeah. feels like a Disney year. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it. Actually, they also released the brave little toaster and that's uh that's Pixar before it's Pixar, isn't it? Yeah. I believe John Lasseter was involved in it. So it's almost like a toy story, uh, first go ahead attempt. I, I rewatched that movie a few years ago. That movie is fucked up. <laughs> I remember it being very fucked up. It's super fucked up. Not as fucked up as the sequels where brave little toaster goes to Mars. And the brave little toaster and the rest of the toasters get in a laundry basket and fly to Mars where all the abandoned appliances live. And I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Bobby, in your best Robbie impression, tell us <laughs> to uh, tune in next week to the podcast War Tennis Shoes. Or tell us your, your catchphrase in your best Robbie impression. But am I doing my Robbie impression or an impersonation of your Robbie impression? <laughs> Do an impersonation of my impersonation of Robbie. Okay, I'll do both, just because I want to impersonate Robbie because I love him so much. I'll, I'll start with yours. Okay. Uh, yeah. Tune in next week to the podcast for tennis shoes. <laughs> Tune in next week to the podcast for tennis shoes. Ooh, that was good. That was a very authentic impression. That hey, I'm impressed. Uh, Thomas, I'd like you to say it's called the podcast War tennis shoes. It's called... The podcast wore tennis shoes? All right. And now your your direction is I want you to say it as if you're Robbie. The podcast wore tennis shoes. Okay. Now I want you to say it as if you're me saying it as if I'm Robbie. Oh, yeah. It's called The Podcast Wore Tennis Shoes. <laughs> All right. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Juice. No thanks. Not thirsty. And that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar, that's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks. What a terrible name for the show. Worse than the